Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. So Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit, They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of nations, and in their riches you shall glory. Because their shame was double, and dishonour was proclaimed as their lot. Therefore they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. And the second reading is from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, and it's verse 4 to 7. That's page 984. 1 Peter 2. Come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. And a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not, they they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of emperor as supreme or as governors, as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet don't use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honour everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nothing matters more than knowing who you are. Nothing matters more than knowing who you are. Uh, Out of that inner heart knowledge comes identity and worth. Identity is what makes you, you, and not someone else. Us, us, and not some other kind of community. And worth is about the value of that identity. And especially at the moment when Uh, Christians and Christianity are seen not so much as foolish or outdated, a relatively benign assessment. No, we are seen as dangerous and destructive. We're the enemy. Attaching worth to that identity is harder and harder. Uh, We're at an important time in the life of CCIW for a range of reasons. Um, We are post, uh, although potentially mid-pandemic, hard to know, uh, which means that Uh, The cracks in the soul of the society around us, which are normally hidden safely under the surface, are just a little more exposed than they otherwise would be, a little more ragged than usual. And that gives us an opportunity to bring by word and deed, by life and lip, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that needs it more than anything else. Second, we have come through the challenges of the last two years in reasonable shape, it seems to me with unaltered faith in the goodness and kindness of God and the truth of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for his lost world. And third, we are embarking on a renewed vision process for the church to engage in uh, the risky but fundamental work of trying to see into the future, the future that God has for us specifically. And with that, to bring a renewed sense of focus and clarity and direction to our life as a church. In three weeks, a group from across the life of the church will assemble to give shape to that, including trying to articulate where we will be in 10 years' time and working back from that to what we need to do in the short and medium term as well. And as we prepare for this kind of renewed vision, there is nothing more important to do than to remind ourselves and deepen our inhabiting of who we are, our identity and our worth. And the Apostle Peter is a wonderful, spirit-inspired guide to us this morning, and in particular, that remarkable second chapter of his first letter. You heard it in verse 9, listen to it again, but you are. But you are. The but, because he's contrasting those who belong to Christ 
with those who do not, and in particular, their view of us. One commentator describes Peter's context as, quote, a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. Sounds like he's been reading the City Morning Herald. I mean, how could he do that back then? It turns out that in Peter's time, as much as in our time, Christians are the evildoers. That's their assessment of who we are. And standing against that adverse judgment is the word of Christ. So who are we? Really? Who are we? Point one, we are people who have found grace. Peter writes in the most extraordinary terms, listen again to who he says Christians are, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here is the antidote to the poisonous shame that's being heaped upon Peter's original readers, uh, which misstates who they are. Uh, and to these despised and rejected Christian community uh, communities, Peter says that they're not antisocial half-breeds. Instead, they're a chosen race. Uh, it's an astonishing phrase, uh, isn't it? Indicating that far from being the dregs of society, the, the people who drag everything down, a society then, as now, deeply divided along racial lines, these Christians are a whole race to themselves. And, and not just any race, but a chosen race. Chosen by God, in that sense, if anything, spiritually superior rather than inferior. Can you hear the potential danger in that? And at the same time, can you see the potential for incredible good? The radical cure for all the evils of racism in any society that is available right here, because this is a race that doesn't depend on who your parents were or what the colour of your skin is or what language you speak. This is the race that is by grace. And, and to these slandered Christian communities, ironically accused of atheism because they denied the existence of the gods, and on the basis that there was only one true God, Peter says that they're a royal priesthood. Far from being unspiritual fools as a community, they are the point of connection between God and the world. That's what a priesthood is. They're a priesthood by the king's own appointment. To, to all the members of these communities belong the privileges of priesthood, knowing the truth about God, bringing the truth to bear in the lives of the people around them. Or again, to these Christian communities that were regarded as shameful ignorers of the privileges that were theirs as a consequence of being part of the Roman Empire, Peter writes that they're a holy nation. That is, a nation within a nation. A community with a fundamentally different allegiance, a holy allegiance to the one who created them. And, and the idea of nation here is one of a comprehensive counterculture. Not just a club. A club is where the members have one thing in common, right? But otherwise, live their lives differently. 
Being a holy nation means that the Christian community does all of life according to a particular shape. Not just the club bits. Not just the religious bits. Money and sex and power and decisions and values and goals and the purpose of life and the defeat of death. That's the nation that we are. A holy nation. And finally, the Christian community is regarded as rubbish to be discarded on the junk heap of history. Peter writes that they're God's own people. It's a a little weak as a translation, actually. It has uh, much more strongly the idea of a special and treasured possession. God has his favourites, it turns out. Although it's not the favouritism of indulgence and indolence. It's the favouritism of mission and purpose. And notice that underlying all these enormous privileges, emphatically and crucially, is the reality that they are found in grace. This is not from ourselves. It is a gift of pure, sweet grace. There is not one whiff of boast or arrogance in this at all. You see how Peter puts it, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What constitutes us, what constitutes you, is not your own excellence or virtue or intelligence or spiritual insight or even moral performance. What constitutes us is Christ, the mercy and grace that we have in Christ. As Peter puts it, the living stone, rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. You see, right there is the key. Our glory and privilege and honour, it's all just a reflected glory and privilege and honour. It's like the moon's brightness. It's just a reflection of the sun. Sisters and brothers, this is who they were, these ancient churches, and this is who we are. I say we before I say you specifically, for these are corporate identities before they are individual. This is us, our identity together. This is our honour, which of course is the opposite of shame. This is our glory. And this morning as we gather in this way, I I really want you to feel it, to, to know it. Uh, We live in a vastly different world to that of the first century uh, Greco-Roman culture, Um, but it seems to me that authentic Christians and authentic Christianity are not a lot less despised now here than it was then. We're regarded with contempt for our miserably unspiritual exclusive claims for Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Saviour of all people. We create disgust in the minds of people because we hold a view of sexual relationships that honours rather than devalues the importance and beauty of sex by holding that it belongs to a marriage of a man and a woman and that that is a divine gift to humanity, not to be messed with, so that it makes for us more sense to be chaste than it does to be immoral. We have the audacity to believe that money is not the currency that makes the world go round but that sacrifice and love are. And so we don't think that politics or education or institutions or wealth creations are the solutions to people's deepest problems. Jesus is. And we're despised for it. 
That's the world we live in. And you feel it every day you go out, every time you walk into work, every conversation you have where the gospel comes up in one form or another. Some church leader's done something stupid again. And I'm saying, will you hear instead the truth about yourselves? The truth about us. We are not the enemies of the human race. We're a chosen race. We're not unspiritual fools for rejecting the supremacy of tolerance in the religion of our culture. We're the priests of the living and true God. Regal priests. Royalty. The, the, the rejection or even just the plain disinterest of the society around us is not the last word on us. Far more important than that is the fact that we are the treasured possession of God Almighty. Can you hear that? Will you go into this week and, and into this year and into your life with this knowledge this grace scored into your soul? Will you live like it's true, unashamed in being Christian, unembarrassed about being a public Christian, alive in this grace that we have found or, or, or perhaps even more wonderfully that has found us? Entirely unaffected by the loud or muted scorn of those around you, living a life of simple God-honouring purity. To know these things is the only way you'll keep yourself from caving in. And of course the reverse holds as well. To the, to the extent in which our lives are pretty much indistinguishable from the lives of the people around us, aligned in values and patterns and habits, well, that is the extent to which we have forgotten who we are. Who are we? We're a people who have found grace. This grace. But secondly, we're a people who are learning hope. We're learning hope in a hard, battle-weary and often hopeless world. Peter's quite conscious of the fact that life does not come easy. In fact, he describes it in extreme terms that aliens and exiles are actually engaged in a spiritual war. We're, we're involved in a religious jihad, if you want to put it like that. But it's completely the opposite of what you might expect or fear when it's described that way. Did you pick it up in the second half of verse 11? Beloved, I urge you as alien and aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Oh yes, there is a religious warfare inherent in Christianity. Don't, don't make any mistake about that. But it's not out there. It's not us and them. It's not believers and unbelievers. That's not the warfare that we're involved in. It's in here. It's on the supreme battlefield. The battlefield of our hearts. Abstain, Peter says, from the desires of the flesh that wage war against you. Now that uh, phrase, the desires of the flesh, sounds uh, predictably prudish, but you'd be wrong to think sex, drugs and rock and roll. Uh, it actually reflects an underlying analysis of the human heart and in particular what goes wrong in the lives of people, why we keep messing things up. In other words, what the Bible calls sin that has a far deeper understanding of human brokenness and frailty and even cruelty than simply breaching some rules. 
as we've been learning about in our repentance series over the last month. Each of us, Peter says, each of us is fundamentally a desiring thing. Every one of us craves meaning and significance and connection or even just numbness to the pain of it all. And, and so we latch onto something or someone to give us that. Uh, Peter says literally we over-desire it. That's the sense of the word uh, which is translated here uh, as desires. There can be a, a bad thing like using or manipulating people on a power trip. It can be a good thing like marriage or kids or career. But whatever it is, when we make that thing an ultimate thing, when we rest the weight of our hearts on it, when we over-desire it, either it kills us or we kill it. One way to crush your marriage is to demand that it bear the weight of your soul because no spouse is up to that task. The way to drive your kids away is to demand that they make you feel good about yourself as a parent because the story you tell yourself that if you're not a good parent, then you're nothing. If you depend on your job for your identity or, or your beauty or your intelligence, if that's where your soul rests, then you'll never be successful enough, you'll never be attractive enough, you'll never be smart enough, you'll be destroyed by that over-desire. It will wage war against your soul. And Peter says the warfare that aliens and exiles are engaged in is the warfare that is against their own souls, against the over-desires of our hearts, the demandingness that stands behind every lie and every selfishness and every outburst of anger and resentment and hatred when we don't get what we over-desire. Our culture has pretty much given up hope in that battle, it seems to me. There is either the sheer embrace of the desires of the flesh or the externalising of the battle so that it's us against them, tribe against tribe, left against right, conservative against progressive, rich against poor. And of course, there are skirmishes to fight there, though fighting them in a way that doesn't just add to the cycle of violence in the desires of the flesh strikes me as pretty difficult, actually. But dear sisters and brothers, the soul is where the real spiritual war is waged. And what Peter says is that we are learning hope in this battle. We are learning hope in this battle. You see how he puts it in verse 12, conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles so that they may, although they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Instead of the dishonour of the victory of the desires of the flesh, we have a hope. We are learning a hope for such an honourable lifestyle that it actually messes with people's minds. They, they malign, but they're impressed. They slag off, but wow, they wish they had this kind of grace and poise and resilience in life. And perhaps despite themselves, they glorify God. Who are we? We're a people that's found grace. Who are we? We're a people who are learning hope in the real battle that's going on in this world to live honourable lives. Which then leads to the third point. Who are we? We're a people who are seeking more and more to be light. You see, what the Apostle says is that we're a community constituted for a purpose, and it's a purpose beyond ourselves. Uh, privilege brings with it responsibility, and the responsibility 
of this chosen race, of this royal priesthood, is clear. It is to proclaim the mighty acts of the one who has made us this way, who has conferred upon us these incredible blessings. You see, unlike a cult, this is a community that exists not for itself, not for itself, but for the sake of the society around it. These privileges are for sharing, and in sharing, they're not diminished like the way that cake shared around between too many people leaves everyone with nothing. No, they're shared around like laughter is shared. It just gets more and more. The joy as it's shared, it's enhanced. Did you see this? The, the paradox is that in being entirely exclusive in our understanding of God and his great achievement in Jesus Christ, we are precisely because of that entirely inclusive, looking to all people that on earth do dwell, all creatures of our God and King, to receive this blessing of God. And in, in all of this, we are more and more growing in what it is to be light. Earlier, Peter says that we've been called out of darkness into his marvellous light. And, and when you enter that light, when that light enters you, you shine more and more from the inside out. That's what it is to proclaim the mighty deeds of the one who called us out of darkness. That's what it is to have this honourable conduct. Not, not warfare, never warfare, that's reserved for our souls. No, we're to be light, to be blessing. Again and again, the New Testament writers stress that we're created and then converted to be engaged relentlessly in a life of public good deeds. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul echoes Peter's point here and says that Christ died to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. In other words, this being light, these honourable deeds are not so much about sitting at home watching wholesome videos instead of really bad ones. Although, obviously, there's sense in that. No, honourable deeds means feeding the malnourished and housing the homeless and teaching the illiterate and freeing the addicted and visiting the prisoner and befriending the lonely and labouring in the cause of protecting the unborn, relieving the crisis of unexpected pregnancies, starting businesses that employ one or two dozen people in a thousand other visible ways of doing good to others in the name of Jesus. Being light. Internal warfare, public peaceableness. And emphatically, not the other way around. That is the pattern of life of aliens and exiles. Being the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that so often, as he put it, loves darkness. When the people of God are under pressure from the community around them, as we are now, there are two easy options. There's the cave-in and assimilate, and give up their identity, assessing it to be of little worth. Or there's to flip out and withdraw and hate, which is actually just another form of giving up their identity, and to say that the community around them is of little worth. And Peter's approach is neither the flip out nor the cave-in. Instead, it is to stand up. It is to stand tall, to know who you are and where you've come from and precisely on that basis and with that offer to engage with the society around. 
You'll see that we've summed up in three phrases that you'll see and hear a lot around CCIW, this identity. Find grace, learn hope, be light. That's the business that we're in. Find grace, learn hope, be light. That's our mission. That's the calling to which we've been called. To be a community where people around us are constantly finding grace and having found grace, join in learning hope and then being sent out into the world to be light. And although uh, this Sunday's term, Vision Sunday, um, in that sense, today is more Mission Sunday. These are the marching orders that we have. As I mentioned, um, we're going to have a go at getting very specific and concrete about what shape that will take, what it will look like for us to do that in our time and place, in the middle of this culture and moment, and with the resources and capacity that we have. We have lots of opportunities before us. A a five-doc master plan will lock into a specific construction plan by the middle of this year. And God willing, we'll submit a DA by the end of the year and potentially start building by the end of next year. What are we going to do with that? Right there, sharing a wall with the metro. What are we going to do with it? We're exploring the possibility of a connection with St Bede's Dremoyne and potentially for it in some way to become a fourth site for CCIW. Where does that fit in? Does it fit in? Or is that just dumb? There are more than 350 people who call CCIW congregations their spiritual home. How can we equip one another to live in the joy of hope-filled heart repentance that we've been talking about these last few weeks and be empowered more and more to shine brightly as lights in their workplaces and in their schools and in their neighbourhoods? What are we going to do about that? These are the questions of vision. And a group of people are going to work with a vision planning tool over the Anzac weekend. They're going to give up Friday night and all of Saturday morning and all of Sunday afternoon in order to come up with and articulate, to discern prayerfully and state what a 10-year vision might be for CCRW. And then break it down into the medium three-year horizon and the short-term one-year horizon and then the next 90 days. Uh, All Christian communities everywhere are on about more or less the same mission from 1 Peter. But how that takes shape varies in time and place. And we need to work that out to give clarity and guidance and direction. Uh, After that group has done their work, there'll be congregational meetings uh, to have a look at it. Uh, Not to do it again. I know we're in the inner west and so, you know, we all have to do it all ourselves. But that's not going to help. It's not going to work. We're not going to start from scratch. What we'll do is we'll see if it passes the sniff test. Can you live with this? Does this make intuitive sense? And if all goes well and the Holy Spirit blesses us, by the middle of the year, uh, we might actually have another moment, which really is Vision Sunday. Can I ask you very specifically to pray for this vision group? Ask God to guide them and then us into real clarity about what he want, where he wants to take us over the coming years. If you have ideas, then feed them into your site pastors. 
that were involved in it, but they're the minority. Because this is who we are. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people belonging to God. In order that we may proclaim the mighty acts of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Amen.